How many can tell me the name of a new neighbor they met this week? Yeah? Good job. Fantastic. We won't embarrass them. They might be here today, right? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I cheated a little bit. I got to know uh, Miles and Karen's, uh, they've bought a house out in Chilliwack, and we were helping them fix it up for rentals, and I met their neighbors. So I, I'm still a little behind in my homework, too. Uh, but I, I left a place on the back of the bulletin for you to fill in the names of neighbors that you do know. And keep adding to that and keep working on that and keep practicing stopping. Uh, just if, It doesn't need to be long. You notice some of the times that Jesus stopped. They weren't long, but they were, they were pregnant moments, you know, metaphorically speaking. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for Alec. Thank you uh, for his friendship. Thank you for he and Crystal and Jocelyn and Millie being part of our family. And just the gift you've put in him. Bless him as he shares today. And, and Lord, we open our hearts. I pray that we would be good soil. Uh, not, not with our thoughts scattered about the cares of this life. Not saying, well, I've heard this a million times before. Not... Um, yeah, just distracted by our suffering, our pain. But may we tune our hearts to be good soil today, to receive the word of God. And we can't do that without you. Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you help Alex speak? Would you help us listen? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Amen. Well, it's already a good day because I think there's quite a few points of confluence between what's been said at worship and uh, what I have to say this morning. So um, I'm encouraged, looking forward to this. And um, I also want to welcome you back to our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Let me make sure this is, yeah, I think it is. Um, You know, last time I was up here, I had to resort to all kinds of antics in order to show you pictures of uh, Millie, but I've decided not to do that today. I'm not going to resort to any antics. I'll just show them to you. So there's Millie. Oh, in the flesh. Flop, floppy head still. Uh, floppy head still. And <laughs> thank you. Uh, there's another one. Don't worry. I only have about 200 more or so. There's sisters. Millie has a, that's, I'm going to flip back to the one right before because this is Millie's permanent face. Let's see, then one more, I think. Yeah, craning her neck to see Mama as she takes her picture. Anyway, now we can move on now that that's out of the way. Thank you. I feel better. The topic of conversation today is above all, Righteousness, Matthew five seventeen to 20. And I want to be clear about the fact that we're talking about righteousness today because we are going to spend some time in conscious distraction dealing with a debate that comes up from the text we're looking at in Matthew. And that debate's inspired by the first half of our passage. But the beef is in the end where Jesus talks about righteousness. So I'm just, I'm just putting this out there for you now so we don't get too too confused. Let's read the whole thing together to begin. Somebody want to read that for me?
Thank you, Peter. Whoa. It's a tough text. It's difficult. Oh, excuse me. And like I said, we could easily spend um, our entire time together talking about the first part of this passage and what it means to us today. You know, is Jesus saying that all the Old Testament commands still apply to us as Christians? And if we don't want to say that, if they don't, how are we supposed to distinguish between the commands that have subsided from the ones that remain? You know, for example, our very own valid smart guy, Mr. Wade Pallister, has said on a number of occasions in sermons, Jesus died so we could eat bacon. Well, I like bacon and I like Wade. And although there might be a few, you're welcome, a few other notable reasons why Jesus died that you might want to include, uh, I can at least agree that because of Jesus, the prohibitions against pigs no longer apply in Leviticus 11. But the question is why? Why? Why do Wade and I think that? According to the passage, won't we be called the least in the kingdom of heaven for setting aside the prohibition against pork and teaching people to do the same? Well, this is something of a sticky issue. And we're going to consciously tread into this debate. But I don't want to get stuck here because Jesus still hasn't finished his sentence. But... Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I I don't want us to lose our focus on the bigger point that's at stake here about righteousness. So let me just put this out there, then we'll come back to it. But here's what I think is going on, and the main point we should hear today. Because of Jesus... Righteousness is no longer derived by our adherence to impersonal rules or codes of conduct. Righteousness is primarily derived by our adherence to the person of Jesus. It's a relationship, which might make things more simple, but infinitely more demanding. And I'll unpack what I mean by demanding later. Um... So keep that in your head. We'll, we'll, we'll unpack this throughout our time together. But in terms of our series here at VEV, the one we're doing on the Sermon on the Mount and on alternative society, we could also say the cost of discipleship is our own self-righteousness. No matter how good we might think we are, eternal life is only ours because of Christ's righteousness. And the more faithful we are to him, the more faithfully will we live out his righteousness in the world. Okay? So let's keep that in your head and go get distracted. Do you need to read the passage again? I think we got it in our heads. We'll, we'll be un, un, unpacking it anyway. But anyway, I'm taking a class at Regent um, this term. I've decided to start taking classes again because I get the benefit. Being a full-time janitor, you're still staff, so you get three classes a year. That's great. So I'm taking uh, the history of doctrine with Hans Borsma, and it's really interesting. Um, one of the things we've discussed has been the development of the canon, or the, the, the collection of scriptures that we call the Bible, and how that history actually took place. You may or may not be interested to know, like me, that there is a guy around 150 named Marcion who challenged the early church to actually settle the debate about which scriptures were authoritative. Um, here's his profile, literally. 
Start, he, Marcion, thank you. Marcion started teaching that the God of the Old Testament was not the same God as the New Testament. That was his teaching. He was teaching people that the God of the Jews was so different, he couldn't have been the God of the Christians. In fact, he was so convinced about this difference, he started saying that the Old Testament had absolutely no relevance to Christianity and was the product of demons. He threw out the whole Old Testament. He also threw out a lot of what came to be the New as well. Uh, In fact, he threw out all the Gospels except Luke. You'd kind of have to because of the passage we looked at already today in Matthew. Uh, In fact, he changed Matthew. Before he threw it out, he he took the time to change what Matthew actually wrote. So instead of Jesus saying, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I came to fulfill them, Marcion's Jesus says, I am come not to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to destroy them. Well, let's just say... Dear friends, that Marcion's attempt here is one way to settle the debate about what remains from the Old Testament and what doesn't. But it's a bit extreme. Consequently, it's also a good way to get condemned as a heretic. (laughs) Besides all that, it's simply not what Scripture says. What Scripture tells us is this. Yes, Jesus was definitely a harbinger of something radically new. He was definitely saying things that shocked people about the nearness of God's kingdom, especially, and how in his own ministry that kingdom was coming at hand. He was definitely shocking the very people who claimed to know the Old Testament the best, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He was fomenting a lot of chatter. People are amazed at his teaching. They marvel because here's one who speaks with authority, and he underwrites that teaching with miracles of healing and provision. But no matter how hard they try, the Pharisees cannot catch, pardon me, (laughs) Barbara Streisand. (laughs) The Pharisees cannot catch Jesus uh, in a misreading of the law. Every time they try, he puts them to shame. He makes them look bad. And in the Sermon on the Mount, which frames our passage today, Jesus is true to form. He is yet again preaching and teaching with authority. He actually speaks as though he's usurping Moses' authority as a teacher of the law, the one who received divine revelation from God on Sinai. And in just a few short verses, he'll actually start saying, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And what that meant to their ears was, Moses taught you this, but now I'm telling you this. For all these reasons, Jesus' identity was a pretty constant source of confusion amongst the people. Who, who is this? What's he really trying to do? Some people think he's a good fit for political office, so they try to force him to become king, and he does this magical disappearing act in front of them. You know, some people say that he's John the Baptist. Some say he's Elijah. Others say he's a prophet who's come back from the dead. And in our passage today, we can at least say that Jesus is setting the record straight about one thing especially, and that's his relationship to the Old Testament, to the tradition of Israel. Um, as an American, I, I guess I'm somewhat interested in the presidential election that's going on. But I do live in Canada, so that should clue you into how interested. But anyway, in presidential elections, one of the things, one of the ways that they frame questions to candidates is they'll often say, where do you stand on such and such issue, gun control or abortion or so forth? Where do you stand? And as Jesus is attracting a lot of heat 
as a revolutionary, or if you're a Pharisee, as a blasphemer, it'd be natural for people to ask, where do you stand on the law that Moses gave us? You know, you're, you're healing on the Sabbath, your disciples eat grain on the Sabbath, you hang out with sinners and tax collectors. Where, where do you stand? Are you preaching a new platform? You know, where do you stand when it comes to the, to the tradition we've inherited? And unlike our politicians, Jesus does not step, sidestep the issue. Right here at the front of his condensed, most condensed form of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, right here at the front, he's not holding anything back. He kicks things off with a bold assertion. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Get that idea right out of your head. If anybody like Marcion comes to you later and says that what God was doing back then is null and void, just kick him out of the church because that's not what I'm doing. I came to fulfill the plans that God set in motion way back then with Moses and Abraham, David, the prophets, all of it. I came to fulfill all of that. And from my reading... I think that Jesus' words are to be read in the most literal sense. You know, it's not like as a, as a presidential candidate might be discussing an abstract issue and their relation to it. To it. Um, it's not like he's talking about these issues and saying, yeah, I, I'm going to carry a, a gun just like Moses did. <laughs> I, don't need to, I don't need to explain this joke, do I? I, don't, I hope I don't. Our good friend Charlton Heston. You know, his comment about the law and the prophets doesn't mean he's just going to carry it forward, that he's just going to be another one in line who agrees or disagrees with a certain topic. What it means is that he will actually live out the law himself. He will, he will personally fulfill the law without remainder. He will satisfy every aspect of the law, leaving none of it for somebody else to take up in the next term of office. Imagine, if you will, you possess the blueprints to the most amazingly beautiful house you've ever seen. And you've inherited a giant plot right up there in Deep Cove, or wherever you'd pee your pants to get to live. And and whoever the architect was behind these blueprints, man, that guy was a genius, because this house is going to be awesome. It'd make it into every coffee table book on cool houses ever. This is a nice house. In fact, it's so amazing. It's been 30 years, and it's like you barely got started. You know, the plans are so intricate and detailed. You've got to get the master craftsman there in order to try and even lay the foundation. It's got to be perfect to a T. Well, imagine that the law is like those blueprints for how to build this amazing house, and nobody can really get it done. Partly, nobody can get it done because as soon as one group gets started, the next group comes in and wrecks it for the, for the next people. But also because the plans are intense. Even the best in their trades are struggling to get this thing right. What would you expect from the most amazing house in all the world? Well, for Jesus to say he's not come to destroy the law, I was thinking about it this week, it means in the first place he's not building a different house than those plans are intended to describe. He's not building a different house than the blueprints that God gave Moses described. So don't toss those blueprints away. You can't. But then for him to say he's come to fulfill the law means he's going to build a lot more on that house than anybody ever did. In fact, by the time he's done, it's finished. The house is built, which reminds me, you know, why do we call them buildings when we're already done building them? We ought to call them built. Thank you. It wasn't mine, though. Uh, Gallagher, the guy who smashed fruit. 
When he opened his mouth and talked, that's what he would say. He, he should have stuck with the fruit, I guess. <laughs> anyway, Jesus will fulfill the law like a master craftsman would fulfill the blueprints for the most amazing house in the world. He's not just going to make the framing perfect. He's going to sand and stain the spiral staircase. He's going to install the wainscoting in the library. Maybe he'll even put the cookies in the oven on the day of the showing. I don't know, but I want some cookies. I'm off track. I think you get the point. So does that mean we don't need the blueprints anymore? No, not really. It hardly means that. But it, does, it is fair to say that we don't need them in the same way we did during construction. You know, we, we don't need them as much as we need to actually live in the house that Jesus built and that the blueprints pointed to. Um, oh, darn, I forgot that one. It's a, it's a nice house to me. I wouldn't mind to live there. What do you think, Kenny? Can we move in? writing about this passage New Testament scholar your friend and mine the milkman himself Douglas Moo he explains in all its details the scripture remains authoritative but the manner in which we relate to and understand its provisions is now determined by the one who has fulfilled it so Wade what can we conclude about Jesus and pork well, let me put it this way. Uh, it, might, it might have been important not to eat pork for the Israelites during construction to preserve their identity, but that kind of restriction is kind of like having to wear a hard hat when, it, when you're raising the roof. You know, it'd be silly nowadays to have guests over and hand them the hard hat when your house is done. So, you know, it's kind of, kind of silly. Similarly, those who live in Christ's house can pick up the phone, call Pizza Hut, and get that thing smothered in bacon which means I want pizza now, too. Pizza and cookies. Okay, buddy. Barbara Streisand. Now, I, I, uh, I suspect that some of you might not be convinced about how applicable my analogy is. You know, maybe you don't see how clearly it, it helps us draw the lines between what remains and what doesn't, but you're wrong. Um, yeah. For instance, it, 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 it might be okay to eat pork now, but it's never okay to murder somebody. And you'd have to be a pretty confused legalist not to see that. If you don't think there's a moral difference between eating bacon and killing someone, I don't think we'll be friends, because according to you, I might as well kill you after breakfast. <laughs> Did you get that? Bacon and murder are not equal transgressions of the law. And the law will tell you that if you need it to, but so will your brain. So... Let's get out of metaphor land, Alec, and back to the Bible. Um, I warned you we would be consciously distracted, and I think we succeeded. Scripture. Uh, 18 to 19 of Matthew 5. For I truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law till everything's accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, um, I have a few things to say on this point. You might think that what Jesus says here, if you're reading closely, undoes a lot of what I've just said. Until heaven and earth disappear? It's a long way from now even, isn't it? Well, maybe. Um, but I want to argue that everything really depends 
on the centrality of this phrase and how we interpret it until everything is accomplished. What does that mean? Does that mean till the end of time or what? Fast forward with me to the scene of the crucifixion. In the Gospel of John, we read this. John is the last of the Gospel writers, and um, many think that beloved disciple actually means designated interpreter. If he was the beloved disciple, he was probably the one that Jesus would have trusted the most to interpret his life and mission, which is why his gospel reads so differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are really historical. They, they seem to be really episodic. And then the Jesus in John is really just totally different. Um, one way of, of explaining that, some have said, is that John was, was the designated interpreter of Jesus. He was also the last, so he's writing to a different audience. But all of that aside, this is what John writes. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's finished. The phrase is really interesting given our passage today, don't you think? Um, it's only one word in Greek, this phrase, tetelestai. It only shows up twice in Scripture, both times right here in John, the other time being up here in verse 28. Everything had now been finished, knowing that um, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. But this word, tetelestai, was commonly used in New Testament times, actually, and it was used as part of business dealings. It was written on documents from, from business, on receipts, on legal transactions, in order to show that a bill had been paid in full. You know, so it'd be like today when you go to the bank and you finally pay off your loan, and they give you that final statement, and balance is zero, paid in full, they stamp it, to tell us die, paid in full. Um, there's ob- some pretty obvious connections we would make as pretty good Protestants, about the debt for sin that Christ paid in full on our behalf. But I, I want to go farther than that today. I want to draw out more than that. Um, I want to draw our attention to the way paid in full indicates an exchange that's more than transactional. It's more than a debt that's been paid. It's the whole plan of God to reunite the human and the divine, which is what the law was set up for in the first place, so that human, humanity could know God again, to create a context where we could know each other, humans and God. And if we have any confusion about what it is that Christ finished, we should look back to Matthew 5. All that God intended for humanity, all that the law pointed to, all the hopes that the prophets anticipated, everything that reveals God's deepest desire to unite humanity back to himself, not just the need to deal with sin, but the whole ball of wax, that plan is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. And here on the cross, he knows he's done it when he takes his last breath taking even the curse of the law into his innocence. This amazing movement of Jesus, the descent of the divine, right into the very depths of law's curse, death, is far more than a legal transaction where the debt gets paid. It's not less than that, but it's more. Because when divinity goes to death, as you all know, three days later, what happens? Death is swallowed up in God's greater power of life. 
And that's why, even though we sit here in 2,000, you know, 2000 years beyond the death of Jesus, in him everything is still present tense. Is Everything is completed. To confess that means acknowledging that nothing you or I could ever do will ever improve the house that he built. He fulfilled the law and swallowed up its curse. And he established an everlasting house where humanity and divinity can dwell together once again. Great news. Paul puts it this way in Colossians. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. It's awful good news, don't you think? But coming back, what, is it, what does it have to do with righteousness? Especially in, as Jesus describes righteousness in Matthew 5. Where are we now? Back to the text. Verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why does Jesus go here? Um, Why does this immediately follow everything that we've said so far? You know, if we're to understand that the law has been fulfilled, the written written code has in some sense been canceled, why does Jesus now say our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees? Well, as we go through our series on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that becomes really clear to us very quickly, and we'll, we'll find that in the weeks to come, is that Jesus hardly relaxes on the moral vision of the people of God. Uh, he hardly turns us away from the demands of practicing good deeds. Matthew especially will underscore our need to practice the righteousness we've received from Christ. In just a few chapters, Matthew will say that Jesus told the people, you've heard it said, do not lust or do not commit adultery. But I say, whoever looks lustfully at a woman's already committed adultery. Similarly, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say, whoever says, Raka, you fool, has already committed murder in his heart. It's on the highway to hell. And what's funny is he's commenting on the law that he just told us he's come to fulfill. So what's going on? I have, a few, I have a few things to say before we start to, start to wrap up. If we are wise, which I don't presume to be, I've been really chastised this week, but if we are wise, we will see that Christ's fulfillment of the law means we are actually more accountable because in Jesus, God reveals to us what the law truly requires. And we're given to understand there's no way we can do it. So why does he say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees? I want to suggest that he says it for the same reason he issues such stringent demands for discipleship and such harsh calls to following him, harsh demands of allegiance. Following Jesus isn't mainly about our obedience to the rules he wrote down. That'd be too much like the old covenant, where we could always measure how we're doing by our credit of good things we've done. It's not like that. Following Jesus demands the surrender of our hearts and minds and souls and strength before the fact that we can't do it. The surrender that we must love him above even ourselves. Why would anybody do that? Because we've been shown his identity. As we talked about his identity earlier, people are wondering, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? 
And he asks his disciples, who do people say I am? They give all kinds of responses that the people say. And then he puts the burden on them. Well, who do you say I am? It's Peter who says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. If we see him as he is, we know that our righteousness must be his, and we can't get there on our own. But we can surrender all our claims to self-righteousness. We can surrender all the ideas that we have that we can do it. And we can just follow him, be obedient to his voice, his living voice. We can give up on our preference for systems of credit with God. We can surrender our desire to prove ourselves like the Pharisees. We surrender. And the good news is that if we will do that, a marvelous transaction begins to take place. In place of our navel-gazing, which is what the law does, he pours in the power of his own spirit of grace and mercy so we can show grace and mercy. So we can sin all the more because of that grace? No, Paul says, so we can become instruments of righteousness. His righteousness. And as it flows through our deeds and seasons our words, we will be transformed in the process into his image and likeness. That is how our righteousness, which is really his, we're just borrowing it, will exceed that of the Pharisees. It will reflect the very heart of God that was behind the law in the first place. It will express that greatest commandment that people ask Jesus about. On this hangs the law and the prophets. Love God. Love your neighbor. And as we move to wrap up, I want to resort to yet another analogy, which they all break down at some point. But as I thought about it um, this week, what this tension is between the grace we've been shown and the fact that Jesus calls us to righteousness. Um, I, th- I thought of the, the harm reduction program that Gordy talks about a lot here for drug users. I think we're all familiar enough with that program, but I will kind of catch us up. Um, the idea is that if you remove the criminal element from the cycle of getting and using drugs, then over time, social research has shown a lot of users get bored and they move on with their lives. What they've shown is that a lot of the rush involved in using drugs, a lot of the addiction comes from the chase of having to get it in the first place. You know, part of the addiction involves the crime and the pursuit and so forth. Well, the harm reduction program, what it does is it decriminalizes drug use, makes it a public health issue. So it's not viewed through the lens of law enforcement as much as it's viewed as a public health issue that requires medical intervention. Under the program, you don't have to go through the chase. You don't have to go steal 20 bucks to buy drugs from a dealer. You just go to your doctor, and he prescribes it. Here's your drugs. The stigma is taken away. And what Gordy will tell you, Kathleen will tell you, a lot of social science will tell you, is that for a lot of people anyway, when that stigma is removed, and you realize day to day that you're just wasting your life using drugs because your doctor is giving it to you, you, get, you just find the motivation to do something else. And I thought about that today in regard to the fallout of us living in Christ's fulfillment of the law. It seems to me like the stigma that would be tied up with rule-keeping and people-pleasing, the comforting cycles of guilt and punishment that make people focus on themselves instead of others, all of that's debunked in the light of Jesus as a complete waste of time. There's no point to that system anymore. You know, we, we can't undo what Jesus has done. Our doctor 
has stepped into our world and already dispensed all the righteousness we need to live by faith. It's inevitable we'll relapse now and again. We're going to miss the mark. But he's not the one bringing guilt into our hearts to condemn us. That's not him. Which means we don't get the pleasure anymore of relying on our failures so as to avoid the calling of righteousness. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. I I actually think of maturity in Christ starts with getting bored with constantly belaboring your weaknesses or your pet sins, believing falsely that they disqualify you from truly manifesting God's glory. The question for us today is how are we using our freedom to exercise his righteousness? And in all humility, as a partner in crime, as it were, I want to suggest that some of us who claim Christ as Lord actually live our lives with this psychology that denies the freedom Christ offers by his fulfillment of the law. I'm not saying we want the Old Testament rules to come back on the table. What I'm saying is that we live actually much worse than that. Many of us prefer to live under a legalistic demand that makes us feel we have to prove ourselves so as to be worthy of grace. And we're comforted in a dark kind of way by knowing we can't do it. We don't deserve it which is why we don't receive it. We use the gap between our incapacities and God's calling as an excuse to stay in sin. It's selfish and it's a spirit of suicide because it denies the tetelestai of Jesus. Sister Wendy Beckett puts this way better than I can. She's a Catholic nun who's become famous for critiquing art on a show on the BBC. And in an interview with Bill Moyers about her life, Sister Wendy veers into all kinds of interesting things that I found extremely profound. Uh, I tried to find a video clip of the section I wanted to share with you today, but I couldn't, I couldn't find one online. And the only other copy I have is VHS, which I didn't want to put that on Mark to try and sort out today. <laughs> anyway, at one point, while talking about what it really means to be human, she says this. I don't think, she's Catholic, by the way. You might have noticed that by the habit she's wearing. Uh, She says, I don't think being truly human has any place for guilt. Contrition, yes, but guilt, no. Contrition means you tell God you are sorry, and you're not going to do it again, and you start off afresh. All the damage you've done to yourself put right. Guilt means you go on and on belaboring and having emotions and beating your breast and being ego-fixated. Guilt is a trap. People love guilt because they feel if they can suffer enough guilt, they'll make up for what they've done, whereas, in fact, you're just sitting in a puddle and splashing. Contrition, you move forward. It's over. You are willing to forego the pleasure of guilt. I love that. And what I'm saying is that because of what Jesus has done, the stigma of guilt and your failure to keep the law is removed. If you've heard the gospel, you're no longer permitted to thrive on the adrenaline of guilt and ego fixation, beating yourself up over how badly you messed up. Why? Because everything is completed in him. All the damage humanity could do has been put right. It's present tense. It's completed And our inability to be righteous can never destroy the house that Jesus built. The thing is done. 
So are, are we bored with the system of guilt yet? As Christ's own body, our collective calling is to realize an alternative society. And he, Christ will describe that society in more detail in the weeks to come as we get further in the Sermon on the Mount. The calling is so high because if we walk with Jesus, we must start to look like him. And it's true. We will never get there this side of eternity, but we're called to strive and run the race. When we stumble, we can look to Matthew 5, not as judgment, but as hope. If I mess up, everything's still fulfilled in Jesus. He's already completed all of God's plan, which means I don't bear the burden for building that house. And that, in turn, means I don't get the pleasure of losing a year or five or ten, wallowing in self-pity and misery for all the ways I've blown it. Ironically, given our subject of righteousness, such a posture of introspection is just as self-righteous as those who are self-centered because of all the awesome ways they do good. They're both self-centered. That a broken and contrite heart is not self-centered. We tell God we're sorry, start off afresh, ready to be used again by him to express his righteousness. It's a righteousness that will exceed that of the Pharisees if we forego the pleasures of guilt and embrace the infinity of God's grace. So as we, as we move to wrap up today, I've, I've come away from this passage feeling like a good litmus test for us is this. And I think it's pertinent, given all the things that have been said earlier today uh, about the spirit of depression that might be affecting people or, and just uh, some of the other comments that were made during worship. Here's a, a righteousness litmus test. Are we more proud of our perpetual sins? You know, because they keep us from being phony. Or are we more humbled by the righteousness God has seen fit to show the world through our obedience? Are we more proud of our failures because parading these keeps everybody in in constant awareness of how authentic we are? Or are we humbled by how our obedience really can manifest the beauty, truth, and goodness of our master? In closing, I I can't end a sermon on true righteousness in any any other way than Romans 6. This is long, but the whole chapter basically summarizes what I was aiming for. Um, in looking at Matthew. What shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so grace can increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him, In a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, people come up. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because we're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? No, stupid! It's like he has to keep reminding, grace is not a license to sin. It's another interesting part of the history of, of doctrine. Is, man, the, it'd be hard to be a Christian in the first couple hundred years of Christianity. They were serious about you doing things. They weren't like us. <laughs> no, don't keep sinning because grace is here. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. We're talking about that pattern of teaching in this series, in the Sermon on the Mount. The pattern of teaching that's claimed our allegiance. The the pattern of teaching from the one whom we identify with. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And he asks, what benefit did you reap at that time from those things you're so ashamed of now? My point earlier was that many of us aren't ashamed of them. We parade them around like they make us more real or something. What benefit do you reap from those things? They result in death, dummy. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result's eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's awesome. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we will become what we are. We make, us, make us instruments of your righteousness because we've received your righteousness. Lord, I pray that as, as your spirit's moving in this church, in Vancouver Eastside Vineyard, and as we have sought with, with um, humble hearts to hear your word. Lord, I pray that it would be planted like a good seed in good ground and that we would no longer endure uh, the pleasures of guilt, the, the cycles of guilt and punishment that, that uh, in a weird, dark way comfort us in our sin. Lord, I pray that you would show us the freedom for which we've been released from sin, the freedom that you've given us in Christ. God, make us free people, freely exercising your righteousness because it's infinite. Your infinite mercy and grace that you want to show the world. Purify our hearts. Cleanse us from double-mindedness. Lord, we want to be single-mindedly devoted to you, to love you with everything we have, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, to be magnets of righteousness, not because we can hide behind ourselves. Oh, 
oh, this false humility that keeps us from thinking that you're the one really doing it. Lord, you're the one doing any good work we can do. And we can celebrate when it comes through us. We can celebrate. So make us those kinds of people. And I thank you for the the examples, the testimonies of holiness and righteousness in this body. Lord, I, I put them before you and I pray for strength for them. Walking letters of your love. Lord, let us, let us follow those as they follow you. Let us see how much we need each other, that we are a community seeking you, seeking to understand the gift you've given. Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, just as we're moving to wrap up, because we're just about out of time. We've been told as teachers to, uh, on Sundays to try and give a couple of ideas by which we can practice the, the subjects of the sermon. So, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. This is the best I could come up with this week. Sorry. <laughs> Give them a try and see how it goes out. Because we're postmodern, low-church evangelicals, we're about a billion steps removed from the kind of religious systems of conduct expected of either Jews or early Christians. Get a taste this week. Don't speed. Pray for patience instead. Uh, number two, read the Ten Commandments. I mean, we've talked about, the, the, in many ways, the permanence of those blueprints that led to the house Jesus built. Well, the Ten Commandments are indispensable. They're the pillars upon which a lot of the, the law was built. So ask God to reveal to you this. I think it was Spurgeon who would do this every day. He'd spend like, uh, a lot of his quiet time meditating on the Ten Commandments, and he would do this process. Ask God to reveal to you if you've broken any of these commandments in your heart. We haven't talked about it yet in the Sermon on the Mount, but that's pretty much what Jesus will, will, will do, is he'll show the spiritual reality behind the, the physical aspect of the law. Like, don't kill someone. Well, if you hate somebody, you might as well, not, you might as well have killed them. But uh, it's like, it's the spirit of murder. So anyway, you get the point. Um, so ask God if you've broken any of those commandments in your heart. Pray for him to show his righteousness through you and learn to celebrate it when it happens. Hint, you didn't do it. It wasn't you anyway. Amen? Okay. Thanks, Alex. Just uh, a quick thing I was going to do during the home group announcement was announce the home group leaders. And I know that uh, a lot of them are gone right now. But could the ones that are leading home groups just stand real quick? Uh, there's Fran back there. Wade with Joe, this is Steve and Karen and Alec and Crystal. Um, did I miss anybody? Scott and Kim are back there. So Fran is there, Scott and Kim. Wade, Joanna's downstairs with Mark and Lynn are leading together. And then these, these guys are leading with their spouses and other groups. So talk to them and uh, let me pray over them right now. Father, yeah, let them know. Yeah to plan. So just stay standing, you guys. Let's pray over these guys. Lord, we pray for just uh, as we seek to live out this message of, of practicing your righteousness by drawing near to you and surrendering you and giving up our own right to any claim of, of, uh, of you owing us anything. Lord, that's hard work. We need each other for that. We need to be in community to do that. And so I pray for your skill and your blessing 
in your favor as we launch these small groups. I pray that you would protect them this fall, that you would powerfully move in them, breathe life, bring community, and let them be lights, lights in the darkness, Lord, that will draw others into, into your, uh, your home, uh, your house that you are building, Lord. And uh, we ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Is Dave here? There's Dave. Dave's, Dave's over there. Dave's our chili wagon guy. He was supposed to be dead three years ago. He's still going because of prayer, because of the power of God. Um, we were talking about that again yesterday. And we're just, I just, if you still need prayer, if you haven't received prayer for things, we'll open the front or just turn to have somebody. But you need to go get your kids. So thanks again, Alec. What a great feast on the good news this morning, eh? So grace, peace, God bless you. Have a great week.